0: Welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. It's January, and many of us will be embarking on new exercise programs and getting to the gym. For most of us, just getting ourselves there is enough. But for some, the drive for bodily perfection goes much further. The health and fitness industry has experienced a meteoric rise over the past two decades, and with it has come a rise in the use of image and performance enhancing drugs. I'm Jess Miles, and today I'm speaking to Nick Gibbs, lecturer of criminology in the Department of Social Sciences at Northumbria University. Nick's book is called The Muscle Trade, and it's an exploration of the use and supply of these drugs in a Midland city in the UK. Stay with us to learn about the psychic draw to bodily enhancement, deviant leisure, the hyper real fantasy space of social media, and the impact of economics and social change. Welcome, Nick.
1: Gibbs great to be here.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Your book is is absolutely fascinating. I really enjoyed reading it. Let's start by making sure we're really clear on what we're talking about. Um, So what is the muscle trade? Are enhancing drugs illegal? I wasn't sure about that. Who takes them and how widely are they
1: used? So the way I have kind of conceptualised the muscle trade um, is broadly looking at the use and supply of image and performance-enhancing drugs. So most commonly, and the one that people tend to know a bit more about um, are anabolic steroids uh, then you've also got um, illicit fat burners and um, things like peptides human growth hormone so it's essentially any substance that involves building muscle or losing fat um, and i use a very broad definition in the book actually so okay. I'm on uh mayor underwood's work and she her definition is substances that enhance muscle growth and reduce body fat well, very very simple thought i'd make it nice and simple in terms of legalities it's, a, it's an interesting one so Pembolic steroids, for example, are a uh, class C scheduled substance, but only in the context of supply. So I could be here right now, I could be in the presence of a police officer, I could have a 12-week steroid cycle and I could take those substances in front of that police officer and it's personal use and therefore not illegal. If I were to try and sell someone those substances, that's when it becomes a Schedule C substance and therefore it is illegal. There's also weird caveats in that I could go abroad uh, and buy all of my all of my steroids and related items uh, in what they call a steroid holiday. So I could get myself to Turkey, Egypt. I could come back with them, declare them customs. uh, But it would be illegal for me to order them through the postal service as well. So it's a very weird way. OK, right, right. So it's kind of unlike a lot of the drugs markets. and I think I found this in the research. It wasn't really a kind of hush, hush, illicit drug market in many ways. Right. especially in the sort of hardcore gyms that I was looking at and working in. It's very normalised and not that taboo within specific spaces, is what I would probably say with that.
0: Okay, so people are chatting quite openly about it. And is it too, would it be too stereotypical to ask what who takes them? It's mostly men, isn't it?
1: Yes, and research has found, I think it's something like 94% of, of users is male. It's, it's a very male phenomenon. Uh, Very broad scope, though. So with the research that I've done, and this is partly to do with my own positionality. So I'm not a bodybuilder. I'm not a weightlifter. I'm not a powerlifter. I very much accessed the very open users. So people who are willing to talk to a random skinny PhD researcher around steroids. So it's a very broad demographic. So I spoke to um, bodybuilders, be it professional bodybuilders or or recreational um, weightlifters, uh, power lifters strong men but there's also obviously aspects of anti-doping so um use around kind of increasing sporting capacity in that competitive sense yeah and then also kind of lifestyle use so there is also intersections with lifestyle medicines which is something that my supervisor Dr. Alex hall looked at quite a lot sort of previous to the project so okay a so, hugely, hugely um, varied population. I think that's yeah. where a lot of the work, a lot of the kind of concerns and the public health aspects of my work looks at the shifting demographics of some of those users.
0: Yes, I'll ask you about that later. Before we talk more about the research, I wanted to talk to you about how you did it. I really, really loved your methodology. And I think doing criminal ethnography must be incredibly difficult. So how did you make your way into this world? I think there are two really interesting bits of this, because you went to the gym and you did the workouts, didn't you, for quite a long time, I think. Um, And then also you had lots of interesting things to say about not being too dualistic about online and offline worlds. So it'd be great if you could tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, the kind of guiding principle with the ethnographic work that I did is that I didn't want to pigeonhole myself as a digital researcher. So one of those people that does social media, but equally didn't want to just do an offline ethnography. Because if you look at the world of health and fitness, they are indelibly connected. Uh, Social media is huge within, within kind of the powerlifting bodybuilding circles. And a lot of my participants fundamentally existed in more than one space, so I basically mm-hmm. tried to, to replicate that. So, um, I called it a connective ethnography that's the kind of terminology that I used.
0: Did you make that phrase
1: up? It was from uh education studies originally. Okay. Um, I'm, the, I'm first supposed to bring it to criminology, but uh, yeah. but yeah, no, it's, it's based on a bit of work that's been done. Uh, uh, Christine Hine, um, I think, originally, um. looked at that but yeah so looking at trying to dispel the dualism between the online and offline so i effectively followed my participants through their journey in the gym and then onto social media Looked at surface websites as well i had a little dabble on forums looked at physical supplement shops anywhere where this where the muscle trade existed i tried to put myself so it was very much almost like almost like investigative journalism in many ways so rather than rather than just follow rather than just setting out one specific field site I effectively followed the data and that's the way that it worked, worked well for me I think I think I had a nice it gave me a big data set which I was able to then knit together I think in a way that I wouldn't have been able to so if I would have just hung out in the gym all the time yes I would have been able to speak about the culture of the gym some of the interactions that happened in that space yeah. but then the self-presentation online how that stuff transcends different spaces I wouldn't have been able to so yeah in terms of the physical gym work um, I mean you wouldn't, we wouldn't know to look at me now but uh you haven't was, kept it gym. up then <laughs> no I'm, I'm a footballer not a uh oh okay so i'm not uh, yeah that's my that's my schedule these days um no it was sort of four or five times a week so split over two gyms so one that i called uh muscle sanctuary one that i called predator so muscle sanctuary a little bit more of a sort of hardcore spit and sawdust gym uh mm-hmm. predator a little bit more modern okay both on that kind of hardcore end of the end of the market and it was mm. one uh middle of the city which is kind of near i'm from originally so it was uh it was I knew a lot of the sort of background, the context of the city. so I was able to sort of weave that into the uh, into the narrative as well.
0: And did they welcome you in? Were they happy to talk to you? Were you open about what you were doing?
1: Yes so I went in but ethically didn't want to be deceptive with what I did. So I went in very openly. Um, so for example with the so I set up social media profiles on Instagram and Facebook. both of those profiles explicitly said that I was a researcher. Uh, they affiliated me to Northumbria. And just kept it all above board. So I wasn't going in trying to pretend I was someone I wasn't, yeah. yeah. Uh in the gym, similar sort of thing. So people are very open, I think. When you I think this is the thing with a lot of research, people like talking about themselves and people like talking about the thing they're passionate about. So all yeah. of the men, well, those all men, and then one female, one female participant, all very, very happy to share their world with me. I think there was a certain amount of tactics in terms of not just making it all about, I want to know about your steroid use, I want to know about how you how you get your image of performance enhancing drugs. It was also about, tell me about your way to fitness, tell me about your relationship with your body, tell me about your peers in the gym, tell me about your goals, your aims, uh, what legal supplements do you use, all of this sort of thing. So it's about building a wider picture of yeah. them as people and their kind of relationship to their body and fitness as well as just going in so yeah that was lovely it was really very 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 open nice space to work in to
0: be honest oh that's really nice to hear yeah you get certain um preconceptions don't you about gyms and sometimes they look a bit scary but at the end of the day it's people being passionate about something and just being passionate about what they do isn't it so going on to talk about the research in the book the book's kind of split into two halves really isn't it and one is about taking the drugs and why people take them and the other is about the supply so I wanted to talk about the reasons for taking image and performance enhancing drugs first and being prepared to take the risks that go with that um, and what I realized when reading the book is that it goes so much beyond just enhancing your physique or being more competitive um, so this is a massive question and it's all covered in detail in the book but what were some of the most interesting things you found about why people take these image and performance-enhancing drugs?
1: Um, So one thing I really wanted to do with the book and with the PhD more generally was to look beyond the kind of basic explanations of why people take performance-enhancing drugs. So you read the literature, and some really good literature. I don't mean to come out and slate anyone in the slightest by saying this, Um, but you read a lot of literature. It's a lot of public health. It's a lot of, well, people do this because they are insecure about their bodies uh, or they want to do well at sports. And on some level, that is correct. But I wanted to dig in a little bit further into this. So uh, to paraphrase Simon Winlow, I wanted to uh, look beneath uh, what was going on in this. So it was kind of the guiding question became, why risk injuring yourself, hurting your health long term? Why become so obsessed and so deeply in this world of, of performance and drug use? So that was kind of what guided me was the, uh, the question of of why the extreme, why the extremities? As it's made into four bits, so within my so my book is split into, as you say, kind of two broad sections, and there's four chapters that actually look at motivations. The First, tries to be a little bit more universal. It's probably the most the hardest one to explain as well. So I lent on Lacan Le and lent on Toplakowan quite a lot in this chapter and looked at the notion of desire. So quite often when people talk about bodily ideals. We think that if we can somehow reach our bodily ideals, if we can satisfy our need to look better, that will mean that everything's happy, everything's good. We've, we've achieved what we want to achieve. Um, I on, so, Todd McGowan's book, Felism and Desire, I've upon quite heavily for this, to basically explain that it's not the satisfaction of our body ideals we actually want. It's the perpetual striving to achieve that, to go toward those ideals. So... We're in a constant, and I'm I'm sure you're similar to me, I'm sure we all have the relationship to our own bodies is constantly something around striving about trying to achieve. Very rarely are we completely satisfied and satiated with ourselves. So Mm -hmm. the framework that I kind of used was that all of my sample were taking a sort of psychic satisfaction from the constantly trying to strive to achieve their bodily ideals um, but didn't ultimately want to get there. So within that framework, I then understood the use of imaging performance and drugs to be about putting further barriers up to Um, the satisfaction. Moving the goalposts
0: or extending, making the goal further away in a way, isn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. So quite often there was a narrative of, well, when I reach my natural ceiling, when I get my body to the best I can get it without using drugs, that's when I start using drugs. So effectively we see that, those body ideals somewhat could be achieved naturally, so therefore we put an extra barrier in. We, we erect an extra barrier to stop the to stop the body from being entirely a satisfied, complete project. Yeah. And interestingly, fitness lends itself to this incredibly well. So, Zygmunt Bauman. This is really interesting. Like I had stumbled upon this completely when I was just reading reading Bauman just generally, and uh, he did some really interesting work around conceptualizing fitness. It's literally like two pages in uh, in Liquid Modernity, okay. uh, but he basically looked at it and said that. Fitness lends itself to a, an ongoing, never-ending quest. So we don't ever achieve fitness. So, so what is fitness fundamentally? It's a it's a state of preparedness for a future task that remains kind of unclear. So we can be we can be in a full state of health. Um I could, I can sit here and say that I'm in reasonable health, but am I fit for the next thing that I'm doing? Yes, I'm fit to walk to work. Yes, I'm fit to jog 5K, whatever it might be. But I'm not fit to lift a heavy weight. I'm not fit to go and do a cage fighting match, whatever it might be. So we're in this constant, we could always be fitter. So fitness as a as a sort of concept really lends itself to this idea that we don't ever want to achieve, we want to strive to achieve. And that's kind of how I how I linked it in with that uh, that first aspect.
0: That's so interesting. So you didn't meet anyone in your research who kind of went, Yep, yeah, I'm happy with my body as it is now.
1: This is fun. No, very interestingly, <laughs> uh, quite a few people looked back in hindsight and said oh when I was when I was 32 I was very happy with my physique I looked looked great but I would argue at the time that they would have been able to pick out multiple aspects of that physique that they could have improved so you even get it with effectively looking in hindsight people will say that they'll use that as the as the the ultimate endpoint, even though they've already achieved that they still have that to kind of look back to so that was the that was my kind of not maybe not universal, but certainly the kind of my like, the big theory around uh, around motivations.
0: What are the
1: what are the other three? So, firstly, looked at um, sporting motivations and instrumental uh, reasons. So, very much in line with the, with the with the literature, there is a a huge amount obviously linked to performance in sport. So, a lot of the people I interviewed were professional bodybuilders, powerlifters, competed in non-tested federations. So, they were. Able to in their sport um, use steroids, and there was a huge normalisation of, uh, oh, of steroids okay. In this right, okay. So one of my one of my favourite quotes from the book um, is from a former professional bodybuilder who did a bit of a strongman. And when he was quite young, I think he's about twenty-one, he turned up to a strongman competition, and uh, a few of the lads were kind of huddled around and said to him, "Oh, what have you? What have you taken? What have you? Uh, what are you on?" And he said to him, "I've taken some some flapjacks and some protein powder." Oh, and he basically okay. got sort of laughed out of the room because the normalisation mm. of that culture was that they were all taking a fairly heady cocktail of steroids at that point, wow. uh, different answers. So there was that aspect of normalisation within sporting cultures. So,
0: so you can't really, you achieve, can't compete if you don't then? Yeah. Yes, okay. exactly.
1: So right. I, if I am not going to get anywhere near be winning a competition without using steroids, there was a real normalisation. Okay. So in terms right. of that instrumentality, that was certainly there. But yeah. equally, it goes a little bit broader. So Justin Kotzer, who I work with at Northumbria, he, uh, along with Georgios Antonopoulos, wrote a lovely paper around instrumental use of anabolic steroids. So outside of sporting competitions, the use of, of steroids in to improve occupational performance. So it could be dormant, it could be people working in physical oh, manual yeah. work, uh, and equally in the criminal world. So in my research, I kind of followed up with that a little bit. Found that a lot of the PTs or so the personal trainers that I interviewed and worked with were very concerned about their own appearance because their body effectively becomes an advertisement for their yeah. business. Yeah. So in their minds, they had to keep up a certain level of physique. Because especially the clients that they were that they were working with a lot of the time were aspiring bodybuilders, people who were taking it very seriously. So if they all of a sudden so talking about it in terms of bodily capital, so the kind of Bordesian yeah. sense, if they all of a sudden their bodily capital becomes a lot worse then there are real kind of occupational ramifications of that so that's another aspect through the kind of instrumental aspects third one of the chapter that i'm probably most proud of in the whole book actually um is looking at the case study of philip who was a 67 year old retired academic um and now a bodybuilder in his late 60s and he spoke to me at great length about the pleasures of consumption so that makes the third aspect of this so as much as we can conceptualise steroids and other performance enhancers as being this kind of cycle of dissatisfaction, there is also a real pleasurable aspect to use. So he talks about the increased libido. He talks about being more assertive, more confident. He talks about changes in his body that were positively received from people around him. So people saying that, oh, you look so young, you look fantastic for your age. How do you do this? So he, was really, he really enjoyed and took pleasure in the effects of the testosterone.
0: His is the lifestyle bit, isn't it? Like it, yes. it was his whole life and he seemed to like travel around a lot and do lots of fancy things and yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so he very much conceptualised testosterone as a as a gateway to the good life. So I'll talk about it as the... Uh... Elixir of uh, elixir of youth in his in his mind, so he kind of kept him going with this uh, with all the things that he loved to do. So we had a, quite a quite a nice sports car. So we used to drive around. a yeah. nice sports car it had the motivation to get away on holidays to meet people, and a lot of that he attributed to taking performance enhancing drugs not a huge amount literally just sort of topping up his natural testosterone but it's that real lifestyle aspect of this which yeah. i don't think has had quite as much attention as other aspects of steroid use and other other bits and bobs no so,
0: you, you always think about it in the gym don't you or in competitions but not usually as like a broader thing
1: yes absolutely so he was effectively he was, he was enhancing his whole life it wasn't yeah. enhancing his gym work it wasn't enhancing his uh ability to compete uh, it was enhancing his whole existence. So he quite often compared himself to to other men in their 60s who would shuffle around, maybe go to the shed, do a bit in the garden, maybe go and, I don't know, just sort of shuffle around, not do a great deal. Yeah. Whereas he was out there living his best life and he kind of attributed this to to anabolic steroids. The final one was around social media. So linking through the idea of dissatisfaction, I saw social media as a kind of this hyper real space where we're constantly in comparison with others. So think about it in terms of those barriers to association of our bodily ideals. If we can see a global peer peer group of people who look fantastic, have every aspect of their body looking beautiful, are also preened and improved by filters, lighting, selective photos. That becomes, in, in the words of Sue Backhouse, quite a large expression, Becomes a dopogenic environment, so an environment that lends itself to people moving towards anabolic steroids or other performance enhancers.
0: That's such a great phrase, that dopogenic environment.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I mean, captures it quite nicely. So a lot of my a lot of my sample, they talked quite explicitly about the need to get loads of when they were looking good. They took multiple photos and they could upload them at a later date. So you'd have people who do a photo shoot when they were looking fantastic. And then use those photos during the next sort of three months when they might the diet might have got a bit off track or they might look yeah. quite so good. So there was a lot of kind of aspects of smoking mirrors um, that I think make this space ripe for comparison and also kind of leads to them being alienated from their own image in many ways as well. So yeah. I could put a photo of me from six months ago with a six pack on. I might look like that now and I might experience a bit of sort of an alienation from my own image in many ways. But yeah, there's another another sort of aspects aspect to that that we can constantly that digital environment and that kind of self-representation. And the other, other thing I kind of spoke about in terms of social media was the social media being a contemporary big other. So it being this space that allows for verification and validation of the self. So a lot of my um, a lot of my sample would seek a lot of their a lot of their validation from social media. So they wanted to hear that they looked good. They wanted to hear that other people were impressed with their physique. And that was extended to others as well. So I uh, had quite a nice interaction about halfway through the field work, where I put a fairly kind of self-deprecating Instagram story on, saying, "Oh, getting there, but still, still not, still the, the skinniest guy in the gym." I think was my expression. Yeah. And one of the guys messaged on the, on, on direct message on, on Instagram and said, "Oh, mate, you're looking great. You're really improving." And you do get this—it's—it's it's a sort of sense of community, but equally there's a there's an understanding that you kind of mutually reinforce each other in that situation, which I found really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating. And all of these different four aspects to show how complex it is and embedded. I wanted to, in my introduction, I mentioned um, economics and like the social history of places, because you say in the book that this was really relevant. The place, you called it Potsford, didn't you, in the book, the city that you were working yes. with. So can you talk about the connection between the economic and social history of the city and um, what you found in your
1: research. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Potsford is a archetypal post-industrial working class city in many ways. So a real heritage of sport and sporting achievements and a real heritage of physical culture, which is kind of what I touched on. So I wrote a paper, well, technically the year before, last now, um, around post-industrialism and the nature of craft and graft in the gym. Right. So I kind of wanted to wanted to pick up some of these aspects. So Potsford's history is around a lot of manual uh, working class jobs that don't exist in the contemporary economy. So the city now characterised by warehousing, service sector employment, there's a real dearth of kind of meaningful, meaningful working class employments in the city. It, kind did of you say it was
0: ceramics?
1: That, yes, it was the, the ceramic ceramics, industry. Yeah. So it was the, the principal exporter and producer of uh, lots of aspects of ceramic ware, so lots of tableware,
0: mm. uh,
1: more industrial aspects. Like a lot of the good quality ceramics ware came out of the city, so oh, yeah. it was a it was an industry that was artisan as well as being to scale. So it was a there was a yeah. it's a huge industry, but also there was a real aspect of craft and skill which just has not been replaced. So you mm. go around the city. I was I was there last week actually. You go around. There's a lot of a lot of big warehouses. You've got your Amazon warehouses. You've got your your AO warehouses. Whatever else. Um, and there was really not that many, that much kind of meaningful employments around the around the area. So it was one thing I was interested in, in terms of how does the gym factor into this? And something that really interested me was this idea of labour and production in the gym. So think about what the gym is, and what we do in the gym, and a lot of the tropes and the language around gym culture. A lot of it is around um, working hard, building yourself, building your body, achieving something uh, which obviously links into a lot of discourse of late capitalism as well in terms of a lot of the symbolic language of it, but equally oh, there is a real it, yeah. there's a real aspect of graft and hard work going on there. So something that I was really interested in was how do especially around this kind of fraternal masculine relationships with 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 other men in the gym, how does this replicate patterns of the past? So something that I've dug into a little bit. Um, Jeffrey Grief, who wrote about shoulder to shoulder friendships, which I found fascinating so men I'm definitely the same for this men's friendships quite often are characterized by doing an activity together so somewhere and doing a thing uh yeah. so be at work be it going to watch a football match going to the gym going to i don't know go for a go for a run um, quite often there's an active element there so yeah. i was interested in that in terms of in the kind of era of post-industrialism when we don't have these cohesive collective cultures of, of masculine work where does that go? Where does it get transplanted? And I think part of the answer to that in a place like Potsford is the, uh, is the gym in some aspects.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting and so true.
1: Yeah. But I think there's also a real pull for the health and fitness industry um, in terms of it being a, a space where there was quite a lot of employment um, and going back to the aspect of instrumental steroid use. I think it becomes even more important to think about it in this post-industrial context. So a lot of the PTs, they made a reasonably good living um out of their out of their work. It was a bit precarious at times. Obviously, they're self-employed. The mm. national lockdown with, with the pandemic really was not good for them. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, you can do quite well for yourself. But equally, there is the pressure to to look the part. So there's an added pressure in the locality itself that there is not that many rewarding jobs around generally so a lot of the men that worked as in the health and fitness industry, so in personal trainers whatever it might be a lot of them derived great satisfaction from those roles in a way that is there is not a lot of jobs in the general locale that could have derived that pleasure for them so if we look at the pressure to therefore keep in shape the pressure to be a a brand and this extends to social media as well because a lot of it is being savvy on social media building a following uh, a lot of that you can see how the enhancements of Anabolic steroids and other performance enhancing drugs can really help with that. So I think that was also an aspect that uh, that post industrialism really links in. I think yeah. in many ways, any any ethnography you have to consider the those kind of macro meso macro levels, and I yeah. think that kind of meso local level becomes really important when thinking about the uh, the specific place itself and the specific gyms. Interestingly, yeah. one of the gyms is actually on the site of former uh pop bank as well so it's actually it is is physically in the location of one of the one of these places where there used to be this kind of meaningful quite hard labor employment which is quite interesting
0: yeah so is it true that these gym industry pt industry has it grown more in post-industrial cities do you think is there is there a correlation there that you see in other places too
1: Without any stats to back me up on this, I would argue yeah. that a lot of hardcore gyms and your higher end gyms, there is certainly a concentration around sort of working class areas, especially around places with a industrial and physical past. Cause I think there is that the yeah. idea a kind of post-industrial habitus that goes down the generations. So I live up in up in Newcastle these days, obviously, and uh, there are certain certain places in Newcastle where there are a lot of hardcore gyms. So I used to I used to drive past one on the way to football. Uh, there was a gym called Men at Work that I was rather enjoyed. So there's a lot of these kind of post-industrial spaces have a lot of really quite hardcore gyms. So yeah. in, whereas your more gentrified spaces might have crossfit gym whereas your kind of more affluent suburbs might have a david lloyd or a, a banner times whatever it might be i still think you get these old school gyms popping up in fairly working class areas which i think is yeah. something to be said there around post-industrialism and kind of the the affect and the reverberations of uh, industry
0: it's true in bristol as well actually thinking about bristol where i am and where the different kinds of gyms are there is a again with no actual evidence but yeah there is a there's definitely a link there so moving on from the muscle to the trade, in the second half of the book, you look at um, both online, I think primarily looked at Facebook and Instagram, and local offline supply of these drugs. How do people get hold of them? And what are some of the key features of the business?
1: Okay, so from, I'll start with production, this is probably the logical place to start. So most image performance enhancing drugs are produced either in legitimate pharmacies Um underground labs, generally speaking, they vary from very small operations, which could literally be someone's house, someone's kitchen, uh, through to a kind of fairly hidden kind of warehouse that you can put these substances together in. So it's relatively easy to make. So if we look at steroids, for example, all one has to do is order some raw powders generally um, generally speaking on the internet, uh, and then combine those with not that many other ingredients really, could be made in a microwave and then got to be purifying them put them in vials it's not a very difficult process to make steroids so there is not a, difficult
0: but terrifying to think that people are injecting these into their bodies
1: yes, they've just been made it. in
0: someone's microwave
1: there is very much a, a public health conversation be had i think around that it's one thing around the i think as the market has got a bit more lucrative those lower end quite poor products i think have been pushed out slightly yeah. um the underground labs are responsible for a lot of the domestic steroids um on the market Okay. So a lot of the time, most steroids that people are using, if they can't get hold of the pharmaceutical grade quality stuff, uh, that will be an underground laboratory. So not the best quality, but equally they're a little bit cheaper and they're fairly easy to get hold of. Uh, or you've got your pharmaceutical grade uh, products. So a lot of the post-cycle therapy drugs, so the drugs that uh, users will consume to get their body back to a natural state and to kind of counteract some of the harmful effects of steroids.
0: Okay.
1: All of those but by and large, all of those are pharmaceutical quality. So they'll be siphoned off licit supply chains, or they'll be brought across from uh, countries with lax regulations. So a fairly convoluted supply chains. So I had one, for example, who got his human growth hormone from a an NHS supplier. So we had a friend who worked in the NHS and used to siphon off growth hormone, which is very expensive, by the way. He uh, used right, to siphon yeah. off growth hormone and sell it to him and quite a few of the other kind of high-end bodybuilders. So, there's various ways this is produced, but yeah, broadly it's, the, it's either UGL or pharmaceutical grade.
0: Do you know how much people were spending? How much did people have to spend to maintain what they were doing? Do you have a sense of that?
1: Very much depends on the individual. Um, right. It depends what the, the cocktail or cup of tea is. I think from the a lot of the lads I spoke to, it ranged from kind of £80 a month up to upwards of up kind of £200, £300 a month. Oh, it's, it's a lot okay. of money. Yeah. I think one thing with steroid users, most there's they're not a typical drug they're Certainly not a typical injecting drug using population. So near full employment, reasonable financial means, very motivated, very health driven in every other aspect of their life. So there is a reason disposable income. So there's okay. it's to to run a full cycle as a professional bodybuilder. You're looking hundreds of pounds a month. It's uh, quite mm-hmm. a lot of money at stake in terms of the so that the look to the offline market and the online market. As you said. Interestingly, these markets are somewhat discreet. So the interviewees that I spoke to in in the gyms and the supplement shops, a lot of those would not touch online supply. So traditionally, these like, traditionally, in air quotes, um, steroids and other performance enhancers were sold in gyms in places of hardcore fitness. So there's quite a few supplement shops that still still sell, um, and there are a lot of hardcore gyms there are networks of individuals who sell to each other effectively but crucially there are a lot of barriers to to be able to be sold to so in your traditional offline steroid markets which tend to cohere around supplement shops any sort of hardcore spaces of fitness there's a real sense that you have to serve something of an apprenticeship in the gym to be able to be able to earn uh, the right to use steroids effectively okay so a lot of the there was a lot of barriers that existed. So if I were to walk in and try to engage in this market and say, oh, I'd like to flow, I'd like to buy some testing anthbites, whatever else, uh, I'd get laughed out of the gym fundamentally because I don't have the cultural capital or the bodily capital in that market. So the the best sort of example of this I've got is a guy that I call Dom uh, and a UGL that I call Astra. So all of your UGLs have brand names. They're quite big on branding.
0: Was um, UGL, sorry? And he had a
1: the underground labs.
0: Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah.
1: So the producers so, so, so your underground labs that are producing um the steroids at that lower end of the market, they have quite an emphasis on branding. So okay. um it was so Dom, who I was one of my contacts, uh, he had quite a good affiliation with a brand that I called Astra. Yeah. And he had been to the had been to where it was made. He was quite friendly with the owner of that brand, and he effectively got a lot of his friends from the gym using that, that substance. Okay. So he was kind of vouching for it and uh, he was getting, I think he was also getting a bit of a few freebies off the back of it as well. So it was kind of, he was introduced to the lads. Yeah. So there was a network of, I think it was four bodybuilders that were your brand because Don had vouched for it and he said, this is a good quality uh, quality product to use. So it was real kind of informal, peer-based, very culturally embedded markets. Um, mm. If you're talk, talking about the offline, mm. offline saying. Yeah. it changes a lot when we talk about the online supply so this is where things i think get a little bit more terrifying in many ways uh so i focused on facebook and instagram as my two platforms and one for the, the sort of big takeaway from this is that the accessibility of a lot of these products is ludicrous in many ways it's very 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 easy so right. a lot of the barriers that exist in the offline market eclipsed online because there's no serving apprenticeship to be able to earn these products there's no support in the gym and are you sure this is the right thing to do it's very much a cold fit driven industry when we talk about the digital side so in terms of facebook uh mostly it would be uh ugl affiliated representatives who'd start a start a facebook group um, and they'd effectively have a kind of closed facebook group they invite a lot of people who are interested in health and fitness and try and sell to them basically so Mm -hmm. they do a bit of quasi quasi mentorship a bit of kind of uh, a bit of coaching, maybe in some sense, but I really got the impression that it was all about the money. So it was all about what can we sell and how can we how can we sell it more effectively? Yeah. So that was the kind of Facebook side of it. Instagram uh, didn't have the capacity to do a kind of group in the same way as Facebook. So there are a lot of advertising tactics. Uh, one particularly interesting one uh, being is sponsored athletes. So professional bodybuilders people with a big following online, so a lot of your gin influencers, those sorts of people, uh, they'll effectively have a little, they'll, they'll promote products online. So they'll vouch for the quality of those products online. So it could be they'll have a little hashtag. Uh, so the lab that I focused quite a lot on was Phoenix Labs, I call them that at least. Uh, and they would have a little hashtag saying, uh, hashtag powered by Phoenix. So those in the know would know that that's a brand of UGL. That's, a, that's an underground lab brand. So therefore I can, I can trust that. I, I trust that brand because it's being vouched for. So yeah. a lot of advertising strategies that mirror the legal uh, fitness industry, which is interesting, to try and build up a little bit of trust because people are generally less trusting on uh, digital platforms, which is entirely fair enough. Good job um, too, but yeah, yeah. yes. And then generally speaking, you'd, they'd then uh, quite a lot of the time they'd approach you if you followed their page. Um, they'd then offer you a price list. They'd say, oh, but what, can, what, what do you want? Uh, and then you'd have that kind of online haggle on an encrypted platform like WhatsApp. That's the same for Facebook as well. It's kind of okay. mostly ends up on an encrypted platform. So okay. WhatsApp, Kick, Wicker, a lot of these kind of platforms that pride themselves on privacy. And a lot of the transactions in those online markets would be on a platform like PayPal, Western Union, bank transfer. So trying to, trying to keep it kind of away from law enforcement. Although yeah. with that said, there is a real, the market is not particularly regulated by the police. So if you are looking at the kind of the harms in society, the police will prioritise other drugs markets over over steroids and other performance announcers. So yeah. there's a real lack of regulation in many ways. So it, a lot of this stuff is very brazen. It's very easy. You could just type a few keywords in to most of your social media sites so i've also done a paper last year around uh tiktok that's also right. one that's got got quite a lot of advertising on so yeah incredibly out there incredibly obvious because it's not particularly well regulated
0: it's really worrying isn't it so i've got a 14 year old son who's really into sport and like as he grows will like he's already showing an interest in the gym and bodybuilding and things and you could just see them like kind of going off on this it only takes a few hashtags and a few adverts and then if these UGLs are kind of actively promoting to people rather than where it's really ethically difficult there must be loads of young guys who get involved in it when they wouldn't have done if they hadn't been approached by these people
1: absolutely yeah I think it it goes back to the what is social media as well as the space so if uh, if you're seeing a lot of these images of people who are looking fantastic looking really muscular and then you algorithms then put you down that road of fitness and bodybuilding etc cetera, etc cetera. but a lot of that is really really, really wholesome it's, it's quite it's good stuff to live your life by in many ways yeah. but if you then end up on the darker side of that um, as a yeah as a sort of vulnerable young person there is a real kind of risk there i think yeah. i think that's where the danger is with these evolutions in the market is that it's a new demographic of user so it's not your well-supported very culturally embedded aspiring bodybuilder or powerlifter it's your young lad who is a bit insecure about their body maybe wants to wants to look a bit better, wants to be a bit better at sports, wants to, wants to impress the girls, whatever it mm-hmm. might be. So it's uh, I think we're talking about vulnerability a lot more with the new new kind of development in the market compared yeah. to what we used to. And that's what like I said there's kind of there is a dualism in many ways. so a lot of people that engage in the online market don't engage in the offline market and vice versa because right. if you have a have a good peer group in the gym, and you're able to access what can be reasonably good quality products from those Mm. networks, you have no call to go online. Whereas the people who are are sourcing this online don't necessarily have that community around them or the kind of support around them. So I think that's where we can see a real public health danger.
0: But my next question, I feel like we've covered quite a lot of it anyway, but essentially it's like, aside from the obvious points about physical and mental health. Why is this area something that socially we should be interested in? I think we've established that it's not really just confined to the closed world of the hardcore gyms. And you say at the end of the book that the phenomena does serve as a lens for larger shifts and trends within contemporary society. We've talked about quite a lot of that already, um, but is, have you got anything else you'd like to say
1: about that? Um, I think there is a, there's definitely parallels with other drugs markets. Are quite interesting. So I went to the European conference last year. Had some really interesting presentations around various different drugs markets. And one of the threads that came through with with a lot of them was this digitization globalisation, increase in profits, um, which therefore have your more sort of criminal criminal end of the market sniffing around a little bit more. So I think there is a there's things that we can learn from studying the use and supply of steroids, other performance enhancers. That we could take into looking at other drugs markets. So that's something that I find quite interesting. So I actually teach the drugs module for for second years at Northumbria, oh, okay. and I try to. I feel like I always go back to talking about steroids because as, as we all do in our research. But I think that I find myself linking this work through with so many other drugs markets and illicit markets, and the kind of yeah role of social media, that sort of thing. So I find that fascinating. I think the other aspect that I find a kind of interesting thing that links into broader trends. Which in many ways follows um, Alex Hall's work uh, around illicit medicines is this idea of medicalization. So we we're a lot quicker to self-diagnose, a lot quicker to turn to chemical substances. So especially around the lifestyle use stuff with the with Philip, for example, I, I would hazard hazard a guess to say that we'll see more and more people turning to anti-aging drugs, mm. medicines, etc. Um, and I think that's something I really got through a lot of them. Yes, they were bodybuilders in the moment, but they talked about how they were going to transition out of that later in life and they were mm-hmm. going to keep using a bit of testosterone for anti-aging purposes and a bit of growth hormone to keep themselves looking good. Mm-hmm. So there was a real medicalization of the self that I think was quite a uh, quite a profound aspect of a lot of them that I spoke to as well. And I think that transcends that transcends the world of steroids it, it goes into I don't know, the, the erectile dysfunction drugs, uh, hair loss treatments, anti-aging drugs, it's part of a far bigger market in enhancement, I would suggest.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, this is my last question. So with Transforming Society in mind, being the name of the podcast, what would you like people to take away from the book?
1: first thing I'd like people to take away would be that the motivations for A, hardcore gym work, and B, the use of image and performance enhancing drugs are far from simple. So I hope to have painted a fairly convoluted picture uh, in the book around the multifaceted nature of why people do this and what, what drives people to go beyond the normal levels of, of exercise and activity and health. Um, I think you can't have that conversation without a look at locality, without a look at sort of the deeper psychological processes, this immediate sporting context, uh, this digital environment, and then broader those broader concepts of medicalization, anti-aging, that sort of thing. So I would encourage anyone who wants to do research around this, or is just generally interested in this as an area, to look at the fine detail, look at the nuance, rather than just writing it off as big men who want to get bigger. I think there's far far more to the uh, to the conversation. Other thing would be the evolution of the markets that that satisfy this as well. So we've gone from this this space of traditional gym-based offline spaces to very much a uh, market that echoes contemporary culture and certainly contemporary drug culture. So rise of the digital, rise of the globalisation, um, the subject of being able to very easily source a lot of different products uh, from a lot of different places. So I think that's also a something that transcends, transcends the research and I want people to kind of think about it a little bit more. Yeah. I think the last thing that I want to end on, um uh, I think I put this at the end of the book as well, is the, the use of Image and performance enhancing drugs certainly isn't going to go away. So if we if we look at the motivations that I've been through in the book, I don't think any of those are going to all of a sudden change or disappear in the next in the next decade or decades. So I think this will be something that will stay with us. Um, and I think off the back of that, there needs to be a conversation around long term public health um, of of long term users around vulnerability of those at the lower end of the market uh, and kind of exploitation some of the issues around uh around use by young and, and sort of vulnerable people so I mean, that would be my main takeaway would be that uh this is a snapshot of my experience of the market of motivations but this is certainly not the last bit of research and last bit of uh last bit of attention that this subject would warrant.
0: yeah Brilliant, fantastic! Thank you. It's such a fascinating book, and such an important insight into this world that we all make assumptions about and don't really see all that often. It feels, it feels very important. More information about the muscle trade, um, the use and supply of image and performance-enhancing drugs by Nick Gibbs is available on our website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. Thank you so much, Nick, for speaking to me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.